Okay. I think I am ready to do a show. Nope, nope. Got something else to change. Hold up. Okay, now I think I'm ready. Let's go. Welcome and good morning. I am back. I am Just Human, and this is Just Human number 184. Um, apologies for being away. Um, I am sorry that I missed, that I've been gone basically for a week, but uh, I'm also not sorry. So I'm going to spend a few minutes here at the beginning talking about being gone. Um, I did talk about it last night on Defected. If you missed last night's Defected, um, you should definitely go and watch it. It's over on Badlands Media. Burning Bright and I had um, a great conversation last night, as usual. But we, um, I got to say, we planned out, I mean, we didn't plan, <laughs> really. Uh, we never planned for that show. Um, I mean, I guess I shouldn't tell you that. I should probably tell you that we spend hours and hours preparing for that show. Um, but you can probably tell that we don't. <laughs> um, we, we, discussed like five topics that we were going to hit on that show. And I think we hit two of them, maybe three. Uh, the rest of it was just us riffing off of each other and, um, working through things together and thoughts together. And, um, I think that's what makes, what makes the show good. Honestly, is that we, we both, we, we don't, we talk some in the middle, in the week, but, 
we um we kind of store a lot of thoughts up, I guess, and then and we don't really flesh things out between one another on topics until defected. And and then just before the show, like in the afternoon, we kind of bounce a couple things off of each other, what we're interested in, what's in our minds. And then just before the show, we kind of come up with um, a, a couple lines about, OK, I want to mention this because I want to make these points about it or I really think it's important to go to this topic and discuss it in this this aspect of it. And um, that's about it. And so anyway, last night was we really hit on some important topics and um, um, I think some of the most important ones that we discussed were one defecting, which is what I did over the past week. Um, and then the other one was talking about COVID and the lockdowns um, the, the change that we're seeing happen now with the way media is engaging with that um, and also Trump and the FBI department of energy and other investigations. The house is starting this week, I believe, um, their hearings on COVID. Um, so there's a, there's definitely a, a, a shift happening right now. And we hit on those things. And I think probably most importantly out of that conversation was um, us touching again on empathy that we need to have for everyone because everyone across the globe went through this COVID Thing, whatever it was, this pandemic, this lockdown, this totalitarian lurch that um, civilization went into, and it affected all of us. And it's something that can be uniting regardless of your politics and ideologies and life experience. Um, it's something that affected all of us, and we can we can use that to find commonality and hold people responsible for what they did to us. And But in order to do that, we need to have some empathy for people on the other side who maybe we had a falling out with or we still have disagreements with um, or our politics don't necessarily align. Um, we're all equally – we were all equally victimized here. Um, so anyway, we talked about that. I think that was a really important topic on the show. That came up towards the – in the last half of the show, I think it was. Um, so anyway, today – um, starting at right front, and I talked about this on Defected last night, that last week I've been gone, as you probably know if you're a regular viewer, and I didn't think I needed a break. I actually felt like I just took a break. Um, but what happened was on on Tuesday I got a migraine and it continued into Wednesday, so I, t I, I really checked out those days. And screens were really, my nose is really bothering me this morning. Um, screens were really bothering my eyes because of the migraine. So unlike other times where I've taken a break from the, the information stream and from social media and everything, um, I really took a break this time um, because it was bothering my head and making my headache worse. So, I really set the phone down and didn't log into apps and didn't check regular news feeds and things and, and didn't consume anything. I just really checked out. And then on Thursday I was feeling much better and I started to check in around lunchtime. I think it was. And I kind of, I pulled up telegram and Twitter and truth and, um, started browsing some of the usual places that I browse and, and some of the usual people I look to and 
man, um, I just I just saw people yelling at each other, and it's I know it's cliche to to say, um, yeah, my I think my yeah I think my mustache literally is like tickling my nose. Um, I know it's cliche to say this, but I felt like I saw the Matrix. Like I checked out hard for I defected hard for like forty eight hours, and then I come back in, and I felt like I saw. The Matrix. I just saw people yelling at each other and saw um, hyperbole and reactionism and just a bunch of noise. Um, everything was so emotional. And, and I have to admit, it was a snippet. It was, you know, I was just looking at a slice of things and it wasn't any person in particular or news outlet in particular. I was looking at a range of things and I was just like, Man, I don't want to, this is, this is just, this is just chaos. This is just insanity that is being presented as if it's information. And yeah, there's information in it in places, but you have to get through the din um, of all of this other junk and this insanity to get to that information. And I don't think it was anything unique. Like, I don't think it was like a particularly bad day or anything for these i think i just saw it and um it really impacted me so anyway after looking at that for about 30 minutes or less i was like i'm gonna check back out i'm just not i'm just not gonna do this and so i didn't do a show i didn't share stuff on social media um i made a clip from last from last monday's show and posted that about Trump, Trump being a matador and the matador's cloak and sword. And um, a lot of people shared that clip. I appreciate it. And and then I was just, I just set it down and just did other things. I just um, did stuff around the house and um, went grocery shopping and took my time with it instead of rushing, which I enjoyed because I actually like grocery shopping generally. I like buying um, quality grocery, finding quality groceries and um making good meals so did stuff with my kids and uh yeah i just i just checked out i just defected i just continued defecting until yesterday um and it was really good for me and i feel really i feel rejuvenated i feel well rested about it so um sorry not sorry uh it it was good and i and i and i tell you all of this not to like um tell you like i need like i need that break or like to excuse myself um i'm telling i'm telling you this because i think it's important that all of us do it um and, and i and that's why i offered it last time on defected and that's why we do defected is to reinforce this idea that you need to step out of you need to step out of the trench from time to time and go get some r&r and sometimes you may not realize just how much of an effect this information war is having on you and it can be, it can be difficult to actually disconnect from it and to get outside of it for a time. And it can take a while to like shed it to like, I know personally when there are times where I feel if I don't check my various feeds of information, if I don't check them 
every hour, I'm going to miss out on something super important. Um, and the more you do it, the more you feel compelled, like, oh, I got to share the latest thing or this, this new story just broke. I got to make sure I share that or read it or stay up to date. And no, you don't. No, you actually don't. Um, it can really get control of you like that. And when it, when you start feeling that, that compulsion to consume it, cause that's what you're doing. You're just consuming this information and it can be mis, dis and mal information. Most often is, I would say most often it is mis, dis and mal information and fake news and emotionally driven rage bait and click bait. You, you get into the, you're in the churn of it. You're in the, the, um, the, the torrent that is happening and it'll, that there's an undertow that comes with that, that'll pull you under. And, um, yeah. So I just wanted to offer that and not again, not to excuse myself, but to bring it up to y'all that you may need to do the same thing from time to time. And that's okay. It's actually a really good thing to do. So, um, by the way, my last show has like way, way more views than usual. And I don't know if somebody like big shared it or if it was just a particularly good show last week, or if it's because I've been gone a week. So people just kept going back and watching that show. I don't know, but my show from last Monday, Monday has a ton of views and, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Now, what am I presenting today? Um, I had said last night on Defected, and I had said in my uh, Telegram chat that I was thinking about presenting General Flynn's latest lawsuit and going over that on the show today. I've basically talked myself out of that this morning, <laughs> because, and I was I was iffy on it. Um, I was I was iffy on it this whole time because. It's 51 pages. So I definitely want to talk about it and I definitely want to read it and present it on the show. But I feel that if I, if I get into it this morning, that I'm probably not going to have enough time to finish it. And I'm definitely not going to have enough time to read the whole thing and give commentary and analysis on it. So I'm trying to decide how I want to go about it. Um, one thing I've thought about is that I might present part of it this morning and then do a bonus hour later tonight and finish reading it. And I'll have, I'll be more open-ended later tonight where I have, I have, you know, I'll just go in, you know, till I'm too tired. Um, today I have a hard stop cause I got to go get my kids from school at a certain time. So, um, Flynn's complaint here, let me see. I'm still working out in my head. I'm still trying to decide what I'm going to do. Um, and that's just, that's just me. Cause I have a number of things I want to present, but I don't want to, I don't want to half present it really. That's, that's kind of my thing is that, or my struggle here is that I want to present it, but I want to have enough time to give commentary on it and analysis. And I don't want to rush it. So, that's what I'm, that's what I'm kind of struggling with. So I think, 
I think what I want to do is hit on some other things first, and then I may start on this Flynn lawsuit, and then we'll do a bonus hour tonight and finish it um, tonight. Uh, The complaint here is 51 pages. So this is not... This is not a small thing. Um, I do think it's an important thing, though. And also, there's there's some exhibits here that we can take a look at. Um, I think I I think I like that more. I think I like instead instead of me rushing to present the whole thing today, I'm just going to go ahead and accept that I can't in one show. And so I want to. I want to I want to go over a couple other things and then we'll go back to this lawsuit and I'll probably start in on it today or this morning and then tonight I will get back on and we'll finish it up and um yeah that's what I, I think that's what I want to do. There's some other news stories I want to cover. I need to open this before I take a drink. All right, so good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. If you want to support the show, there's links to do that in the description on Rumble or on my link tree. Um, need to move this over here. Uh, the best ways are buymeacoffee.com slash justhuman and justhuman.substack.com. Those are the best ways. The next best ways are my merch store, redwhiteandbourbon45.com, and also buying some honey from Benton Honey Farms. So all the links for that stuff down in the description over there. All right, so let's talk about the McGonagall case. This is out of the District of Columbia. And we have a, uh, not much has happened in this case yet. Um, It seems like the SDNY case is having a lot more action, or at least is more interesting so far. Uh, There has been a protective order in in this case for... Um, the handling of classified information that's going to be used in it. So there's a protective order in that, and the same thing in the STNY case where there's going to be some classified information. And so what they have to do is they're going to present it to the judge and there's an order that goes along with to make sure that that classified information is handled correctly. This SDNY case, this is what I really want to talk about here. So this is the must, this is the much bigger more important case, I think. Now, I, I may end up being wrong about that, um, but I think the SDNY case is more important because this is the one that has to do with being paid off by Oleg Deripaska. And I think it may come out, um, or at least I'm, I guess I'm hoping, and I think it's likely, it's going to come out in this prosecution just how much McGonagall influenced Spygate and Russiagate scandals and how he shielded Oleg Deripaska, I believe. I think that's what we're going to find out is that he he shielded Oleg Deripaska from further investigation, maybe some other people, and he steered um he steered things in a way that the deep state favored. Um I mean, I, I think this, I really think that we should all have an attitude about this, that this is something to celebrate, that McConaughey has been indicted here. And this is, this is the most corrupt FBI official to be indicted 
And I don't, I don't know how long, I don't know who it is that, who, if, I don't know if anyone higher up in the FBI has ever been busted for being a criminal like this, this guy has been right, right here. And so I think this case is huge and it's one I'm going to be paying very close attention to. I noticed something about this case though, that I find most interesting We've talked about how Seth Ducharme is representing McGonagall in this. He's at Bracewell, that law firm, which is Giuliani's former law firm. It used to be Bracewell and Giuliani. And the attorney he has is Seth David Ducharme, who was Bill Barr's right-hand man, right-hand man for years at DOJ. Um, a very important person who worked with Durham and Barr and was a key player as far as things DOJ was doing uh, kind of under the radar at times, such as trips to Italy to go meet with uh, with, with important people. Um, I think he's a very interesting person, and I think it's very notable that he is representing Charles, Mag- Charles McGonagall. I don't think it's because they're both swampy, deep state actors. I think it's because McGonagall is, and he's hired Bracewell LLP because this thing is... I think this guy is busted really... like substantially busted and that this thing is going to blow up really big. And I think Seth Ducharme is here as a guy who's going to steer it into blowing up very big. Um, I think he, I think there may even be, there may be a deal coming up in it and McGonagall is going to agree to reveal a whole bunch of stuff or testify against others. I don't know, but I don't think that it's because both of these people are swampy. I think it's because this one is, and this guy over here is um it's going to make sure this thing goes the right way as far as what we would want and the patriots would want now that's that's we talked about that before that's not new but this is what i want to point out to you i want to show you something really interesting that flies in the face of uh the reactionary crowd i guess so the oh actually accidentally change that okay so the judge in this case check this out the judge in this case is jennifer h reardon okay so who is she who is jennifer h reardon Uh, i want to highlight it without highlighting honorable check this out Let me zoom out a little bit. All right. So Reardon. Reardon's been in the SDNY for a long time, but she is a Trump nominee. She's a Trump nominee that was recommended by Kirsten Gillibrand. And Trump put her nomination before the Senate on May 4th, 2020. Trump nominated her to fill this seat. But it ended up 
bailing out and it wasn't com- it wasn't completed under uh like right here on January 3rd 2021 her nomination was returned to the president and she didn't make that appointment Biden renominated her so this this judge in this case is a Trump pick who didn't get confirmed before the end of his term and Biden picked her up and nominated her and she got confirmed. Many such cases, many such cases of Biden doing what Trump wants. And I know not everybody can go here with me. I know not everybody can grok this and I know not everybody agrees, but there's these, they're just, we just keep finding these things where Biden is doing what Trump wanted, or he's completing something Trump started, or he's appointing someone that Trump picked, or he's continuing a Trump EO. And I'm just like, I don't think Biden's working for the swamp. And I, and I know, I know that people are like, no, you can't say that Biden is bad. He's evil. No, he's so, he's so bad. We have to say bad things about Biden. You can do that. It's fine. But sure seems to me like Biden is not working for the swamp. He keeps on doing things that don't that don't benefit the swamp, uh, such as this stuff about COVID. I mean, why is Biden allowing these investigations to go around? Why did why is why is the Department of Energy doing this do these investigations? Why is Biden allowing this to happen? Um, it sure sure seems to me like things are not what they seem. And I think it's very interesting that this judge in this case is a Trump pick who was then picked up by Biden, renominated by Biden. It's very interesting. All right. Now, yeah, this, uh, by the way, this one also has the same protective order uh, regarding the handling classified material. So they're going to have, they're going to have an ex parte or in front of the judge only hearing with DOJ to go over some of this classified material that they want to use. And they're going to come up with an agreement about how to handle that. And then they're going to turn that stuff over to Seth Ducharme. And uh, man, this case, this case is fascinating. And there are some stuff in here. I could read some, some, some of the uh, motions, but right now it's still like a lot of preliminary stuff. Like, okay, notice that this lawyer is joining in and the protective order on the classified stuff and et cetera. Uh, it hasn't developed into motions that are really going to get super interesting. So um, as soon as we start getting things like, um, as soon as we start getting things like motions in limine and uh, other things, uh, then I'm going to be reading filings in this case. Uh, Buster Lou, good morning. Yeah, so what I would tell you, what I think, 
In fact, I'm glad you I'm glad you asked that. Mr. Lou says, so Biden flipped after the fact, after COVID mandates. He's asking the question. This is, this is what I think right now. And this could change with more information, of course. But you know that this past weekend, Trump gave the speech at CPAC. And one of the interesting things that Trump said in that speech um was he was talking about how he was making a fun he was making a funny joke about how and he was doing it one of his impressions where he was like talking about how uh, Hunter going to Joe and saying Dad I gotta talk to you I left a laptop at a repair shop and I forgot to get it in time and Joe Biden's like well what's on it son and Hunter Biden's like oh you know every crime you've ever committed. And everybody laughs about it and whatnot. I heard Trump tell that funny, those funny lines. Guys, I think that really happened. Like I, I genuinely believe that that actually happened. I think that Hunter Biden got caught. I think before he was caught, um, I think that he was being used as an Intel asset or a DOJ asset unwittingly. I think that he was being surveilled because of his associations and his actions and what he was doing. And I think that his partners started getting busted. And I think he realized he was going to get busted. And I think he had a meeting with Probably FBI agents, but I don't know. Could have been some other agency. And I think they convinced him to load up his laptops with a whole bunch of evidence and that he abandoned them on purpose. And I think he did that to save himself. And I think he then told his dad he did that. In a not too dissimilar way this similar way to what Trump described. And I think that that has constrained Biden. And I think that has taken Biden out of working for the swamp. And I think that in 2020, the situation was that you had Trump running on one side and Trump baited the Democrats into nominating Biden because they still, they thought he still worked for the swamp. But what actually happened was we had two candidates who were both working against the swamp running in 2020. And so Biden gets in and that's why it's been a failure the entire time. As far as the swamp is concerned, as far as the deep state's concerned, they didn't get any of their wish list basically from the first hundred days. All of the bills that have been passed have been far more America first than, um, well, I shouldn't say all the bills, but the major bills that have been passed have been, um, far more America first than anything the Democrats would ever have passed under Trump. Um, that's that's right, Carl the Carpenter. Hunter is the smartest person Joe knows. And why is he the smartest person? Because he flipped. And 
but the th- I think the thing that people struggle with when I offer something like this is like, no, we have to think Biden's bad. He has to be bad. But I'm not telling you he's good. <laughs> like, I'm not disagreeing with that. Um, I'm telling you that his actions since being president don't line up with what you would expect a deep state Biden to do. It can be true that the Bidens are guilty of these crimes, but also true that they've been caught and flipped and are no longer working for the same, same deep state swamp that they used to their, um, um, Buster Lou, I like that. He's not good. He's owned his ownership changed. His ownership changed. See, I've been talking about this uh, in some of the, uh, um, in so, in some chats with some other folks in Badlands that I think Trump in 2016, I think Trump knew he would win. And I think in 2020, Trump knew he would lose. And I think part of the reason it was okay, quote unquote, for him to lose, not that it actually is okay, I'm not excusing the fraud that made it possible, but I think that the the trick in him losing in 2020 is that the person who gets in, Biden, is not working for the swamp anymore. And so he he is someone who is constrained by the investigations his family is under, which think about it. There's Weiss and there's uh Robert Hur now. He has a special counsel. Um it's the whole family's under investigation, and it's not just for some documents being left around, it goes all the way back to his time as a senator. He's constrained by those things. I think he's constrained by some form of a devolved presidency. And I mean, that's why Biden doesn't look like he's in control of anything is because he's not actually in control. His, his puppet strings have been cut to Beijing. But during all of this, like I'm during all this time period, the news, especially news on the right is doing their damnedest to make you believe he's the worst, most evilest president, most swampy deep state creature ever. Things are a catastrophe. Um, everything is going, our country is going to hell. Um, we're not going to make it. It's, it's doom. It's, it's, it's a dystopia. It's, um, we're going to, we're heading for communism. It's all of those things are being, are being said to us. Um, And that gives cover to what's actually going on. Um, So. But I know that I'm going to have a hard time convincing some of you because. um, Some of you are going to be like, no, that can't be true because of what my favorite news outlet told me. That can't be true because one of my favorite news out, my favorite news outlet told me this. My favorite influencer told me this thing or that thing. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, it's not necessary for you to, uh, to, uh, to agree with this. Um, that's how I see it. And I'm, 
the amount the amount of fake news we are hit with every day in regards to so much of this stuff it's it's just so insane it's just so insane the amount of fake news out there um and perception is reality so if most of your perception is based on fake news then your reality is going to be informed by that so that's right, UK Neil. That is right. All the news is fake. Even the news I like, yes, especially the news you like. The news that you like and the news that you agree with is the fakest news there is every every time. Um, so, yeah. Stick stick with me. Stick with me. You'll uh, you'll come around to me and uh, Burning Bright's thinking on this. Eventually, you'll realize that this is the thing that makes the most sense. Um, all right. So in the Bankman Freed case, you may remember that uh, you may remember that um, in this case, <laughs> Bankman Freed was talking to his. By the way, SBF and FTX. We were told stuff like this can't happen. All those fake news, especially conservative incorporated influencers and outlets, told us DOJ is hopelessly corrupt. It has to be destroyed. The justice system is hopelessly corrupt. can never work. They're still telling you that. Everything is going to hell. Everything is, is bad. Nothing good ever happens. Take these black pills every day. Never have any hope. But here we have FTX and Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried and his associates who have been busted for massive, massive fraud. Maybe the biggest fraud scandal in the history of the world. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. And they're not just busted for some wire fraud and some conspiracy. They're busted for like 12 counts of various types of fraud and conspiracy, including illegal donations to politicians and their PACs. And we were told stuff like this will never happen and that everything is bad and we should all feel bad. And it's a catastrophe and the apocalypse is coming every day now. So pray to Jesus. And that's the mindset that they've been trying to program into us for months and months and months and months and months, if not years. Snuff out that flame of hope. Armageddon is coming. It's the apocalypse. Nothing good ever happens. But here we are. Here we are with this case. That is awesome. And it is exposing so much of the corruption that is in the finance industry and in the political sphere with, I mean, I think, I think the most uh, amazing thing about this case so far, the most substantial revelation out of it, maybe perhaps I should say, is that Samuel Bankman Freed and uh, the other guy, Salame or Salam or whatever, how you say his name, um, kind of don't care because these are some corrupt people. They were giving to any politician that they thought they could buy influence with. And they were specifically giving to the swampiest people who were, they didn't care about their politics. They didn't care whether they were Democrat or Republican. If they were Republican, they just hid their donations a little bit. 
but they were looking for anti-Trump Republicans and they were looking for any Democrat who they thought they could buy influence with. They were giving to the Uniparty. The donations from SBF and FTX and his executives exposed the Uniparty. This is an account, the, the people they gave money to, it's a list of who's who in the Uniparty. It's amazing that we got such such information as that. Now, the latest developments in this case have been that SBF was trying to contact witness one in the criminal case against him and ask him to get on the same page with him and try and he was, he was trying to influence the witness, which is legal, of course. And so DOJ wanted to restrict him on this. There's been some back and forth with the judge and, uh, SBF is about this close to going back to jail. He's about this close to going to jail and spending all of his time in jail until his trial. I, I'm kind of thinking it will happen. But we recently got this um this letter here from DOJ. There's the judge hasn't decided what he's gonna do yet. Um he has admonished SBF, but Right now he's out on bond or bail and he's at his parents' house and he can't go anywhere else except to court. But the government is asking the judge to do these things. All right. And this is the latest letter from him. The government writes on behalf of the parties with proposed modifications to the defendant's conditions of release intended to address outstanding issues raised at the last conference. The parties propose one, the defendant that'd be Samuel Bankman Freed. The defendant shall not contact or communicate with current or former employees of FTX or Alameda other than immediate family members, except in the presence of counsel, unless the government or court exempts an individual from this rule. The defendant shall not use encrypted or ephemeral call or messaging apps, including but not limited to signal. The defendant is prohibited from using a VPN except is explicitly authorized in his bail conditions as described below. Second, the party proposes the defendant is limited to the use of the following devices, and he otherwise be prohibited from using any other cell phones, tablets, computers, or video games, including video game platforms and hardware that permit chat and voice communications or smart devices with internet capability. One, a flip phone or other non-smartphone with either no internet capabilities or internet capabilities disabled. The phone's serial number, IMEI number, IMSI number, MAC address, and SIM number will be provided to the court and the, and the government. The communication function on the phone will be limited to SMS text messaging and voice calls, and all other messaging applications will be prohibited. They want to send this guy back to like 1999. Give him a Nokia. Two, a new laptop with the limited functionalities addressed below. The laptop serial number, MAC address, and IP address will be provided to the court and the government. Third, with respect to the defendant's computer usage, the parties propose that the defendant's new laptop be configured so that he is only able to log into the internet through the use of specified VPNs and that VPNs only permit the defendant to access websites that have been whitelisted through VPNs, specifically an authorized VPN installed in the app would allow the defendant to access the cloud-hosted FTX read-only database that has been provided as part of discovery. Additionally, a VPN installed by Defense Counsel's law firm on the laptop would allow access to the internet 
only through the use of VPN and only to specifically whitelisted websites. The parties agree that the following websites would be whitelisted through the law firm VPN. The Relativity Database hosted by Defense Counsel for purposes of reviewing discovery. Google Drive and Google Docs, which Defense Counsel uses with clients to share information. Gmail, which will be accessed through a single email address provided to the court and government and no other. And the enclosed list of websites proposed by a defendant. The list of websites is divided into two categories, blah, blah, blah. The parties further propose that the following application be permitted to on the defense laptop. So they want to have it with this super restricted laptop that only has Zoom, Microsoft Office, Adobe Acrobat, a screenshot tool, Notepad and Notepad, Notepad++, one password, Python to read the FTX code base, SQL tool for running queries on the FTX read-only database, and a web browser used to access the internet consistent with the provision set forth. Fourth, the parties propose that the defendant's laptop be installed with monitoring and security software that will log to the defendant's user activity, so they want to have a key logger on it and things like that. Fifth, the defendant will not object to the installation of court-authorized PIN registers on his phone number, Gmail account, internet service. They're going to track everything he says and text across those things. These PIN register orders will be sought by the government and maintained by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It's not PIN register as in like a PIN. It's PIN as in typing in typing keys. Sixth, the defendant must submit his electronic devices to a search on the basis that pretrial services has a reasonable suspicion that evidence of a violation of a condition of release may be found. Seventh, the defendant shall not purchase, acquire, or otherwise obtain any new cell phones, tablets, computers, or other electronic devices used to access the Internet. The parties propose to address the presence of defendant's parents' devices in the home as follows. The defendant's mother and father will submit sworn affidavits listing their respective devices with serial numbers and MAC addresses and representing that, that they will not bring additional devices into the home nor permit the defendant to access their devices which must be password protected. Each of the devices will be installed and monitored. So they want to monitor his parent stuff too. Each of the devices will be installed with monitoring and security software that activates the device's camera when the device is being used and takes video or periodic photographs of the user. The videos and photographs will be stored in cloud-based repositories maintained by defense counsel and to which pretrial services will be given access to perform periodic checks. So this is so restrictive that he might as well be in jail, right? Like, <laughs> like, like I could picture, I mean, I don't know that this would happen, but I could picture the judge reading this and going, um, wouldn't it be easier just to put him in jail? <laughs> like, like we got to do, we got to go through all of this stuff to restrict him. How about we just put him in jail where all of this stuff is actually part of being in jail? <laughs> Like that's a feature of being in jail is that all of this stuff is there already. We got to come up with all these special stuff and devices and this order to do all this stuff. We have to monitor it. Let's just put him in jail. So I honestly think guys, and I've thought this since I saw the text messages from SBF to witness one that SBF's own lawyers may be hoping that he goes to jail because it would just make it easier on them and they wouldn't have to worry so much about him effing up their case. 
uh, SBF's parents <laughs> may want him to go <laughs> go into jail to make it easier on them. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I really would not be surprised if SBF ends up in jail and uh, he uh, that's where he stays until this trial is over. You know, he's facing. I mean, he's facing over a hundred years. Um, I haven't done. I remember on the first indictment. The math was like 140 years max penalty for the charges with the new 12 count indictment. It's going to be more than that. I mean, he might be facing a maximum of 200 years in jail. Like the guy is. This is steep, steep stuff. Um, And it would probably be better for his. I mean, his lawyers, I'm sure his lawyers don't mind charging him for all their appearances and all their work to try and keep him out of jail. But. It's it's he's less likely to get to destroy their case. He's already done so much damage to their case already. Um, the guy can't stay off the internet. Um, just put him in jail. <laughs> All right. Remember this Virgin Islands case against J.P. Morgan. This is still going on and I find it, I find it pretty interesting. Um, by the way, I'm not really worried about him going to jail. Um, like I, I know a lot of people think, Oh, well he's going to go to jail and he'll, he'll get off in jail like Epstein, um, or something. I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think, I think much is made of what the reach is. And I think he would be safer in jail. Honestly, I think he'd be safer in jail than he is. They've already had some security incidences at his parents' house. Um, I, I think that, yeah, I think he'd actually be safer in jail. All right. So remember this case, from the United Virgin Islands, like they're, they're suing JP Morgan chase. And this case is developing into something pretty substantial. Um, they're like these other cases, this one by a group of Jane Doe's where they're suing JP Morgan chase and Deutsche bank, um, over the same stuff. Cause they're, they're saying that Deutsche bank and, uh, JP Morgan chase, um, have, that they, they not only knew about Epstein's criminality and his enterprise that he was running, they knew of it and were okay with it and benefited from it and that they profited directly from it and facilitated it. So these Jane Doe's are suing on that basis as victims. The Virgin Islands is also suing J.P. Morgan Chase over this. And I noticed that Sarah Kellen... Sarah Kellen has been subpoenaed in this case. They sent this subpoena to her. I think it ended up going electronically. Um, they want Sarah, Sarah Kellen, AKA Sarah Linnell Vickers, as in Brian Vickers, the NASCAR guy. He, that's his wife is Sarah Kellen. So I wonder 
Did Brian Vickers ever visit Epstein Island? How did these two meet? I don't know. Um, the government brought the civil action against J.P. Morgan Chase as part of its uh, effort to protect public safety and hold accountable those who facilitated Epstein's enterprise. The government's investigation has revealed that J.P. Morgan knowingly, recklessly, and unlawfully provided and pulled the levers through which Epstein's recruiters, Sarah Kellen was one of those, and victims were paid and was indispensable to the operation and concealment of Epstein's trafficking enterprise. Let's scroll down a bit. As the criminal trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, where Maxwell was sentenced to 20 years in prison for conspiring with Epstein to sexually abuse and exploit minor girls, the court identified Kellen as a, quote, knowing participant in the criminal conspiracy and, quote, a criminally responsible participant. Maxwell was Epstein's number two and the lady of the house at some point. Kellen took over some of Maxwell's duties. Kellen had a J.P. Morgan business card, which noted that she travels through Paris, Europe, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the U.S. Monthly. The government seeks photographs and videos from the Virgin Islands, including with Epstein or females associated with Epstein, list of masseurs, schedules maintained for Epstein, communication with Epstein, and the communications or other documents related to J.P. Morgan and Jess Staley. Upon information and belief, Kellen's address is this. The government made fourth good attempts to serve subpoena upon Kellen at her home on February 15th, 17th, and 22nd, and the 25th. There was no answer at the door. I lost my place because I looked at chat. As they're talking about, I saw I, my Formula One radar went off, Brian Murphy. You typed Formula One and my eyes were like, you right on that. Um, in accordance with interpretive principle and the rules be construed, they want to serve her electronically because she won't answer her door. The government has attempted to effectuate service four times at Kellen's residence, but each time was unsuccessful. This is kind of like with Lex, uh, Lex Wexner, right? They wouldn't answer the door because they don't want to be served with a subpoena. So they were authorized to serve it electronically by email. Pretty interesting. There's all there's all these actions, man. There's I, I was talking about this on another show, I think, or maybe I wrote about it in the Bright Brief, uh, or the Badlands Brief, not the Bright Brief, the Badlands Brief. That there's all these different lawsuits that are targeting the Epstein Enterprise all at the same time. There's Virginia Guffrey, and then there's the the Jane the group of Jane Doe's that sued J.P. Morgan Chase and Deutsche Bank. These two cases are being combined, by the way. And uh, then the Virgin Islands case, and then Maxwell wants to appeal her sentence, which is just going to bring her back into the news, which I don't mind at all. Um, all all these things are happening at once. Um, it's pretty interesting. All right, there are some more filings in. I just I'm not going to go into these uh, today, but I just want to make mention of these. Uh, it's Huddleston versus the FBI. This is the case with uh, Ty Clevenger, and um, this is the case we've been getting the Seth Rich laptops, plural. We've been getting those updates where he's trying to get access to uh, trying to get the FBI to turn over all their information that they have on Seth Rich's laptops. Uh, the FBI has his work laptop. The DC police have his uh, personal laptop. 
And this case has been really interesting because we've we've learned a lot of things from it. And there's been this power, there's been this struggle going back and forth. Um, there's been some more filings at the end of February. Um, I'm not going to go to them today, but I just wanted to throw it out there that this case is still going on. And I need to go through these first. And if I find anything really interesting in them that I'm going to present on this show, but I just haven't gone through them yet. Um, but I want to throw it out there that this case is still ongoing and I still find it fascinating. The last time we talked about this case, I believe it was, it was January, I think. Yeah, I think it was back in January. It was these right here, I believe. Um, so it's been a while since we've gotten into that case. Might do that later this week. All right. Speaking of the Badlands Brief, um, this was an article that I put in it this morning. Trump seeks to block Pence's grand jury testimony in 2020 election interference probe. Former President Trump had asked a federal court to block former Vice President Mike Pence from speaking to a grand jury about certain matters covered by executive privilege as part of the criminal investigation into efforts to overturn Trump's 2020 election loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spin, spin, spin. The request in a new filing submitted secretly in a sealed proceeding on Friday, that'd be last Friday, comes after the Trump team had already indicated to special counsel Jack Smith, who was overseeing the Justice Department's criminal investigations into Trump, he's not investigating Trump, that the former president intended to assert privilege over Pence's testimony. DOJ had previously asked to a judge to compel Pence's appearance before the grand jury. Um, that's because Pence... Pence had been asked to come in. <clears throat> Pence said no. So they asked DOJ to, they asked the judge to force Pence to come before the grand jury. Pence is fighting it. It is unclear. It's unclear how long it will take for the sealed proceedings to unfold, but it's possible that the district court resolves the dispute or that it will be appealed to a federal appeals court and perhaps eventually the U.S. Supreme Court. Since taking over the DOJ investigation into blah, 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 blah. Pence already said, I'll take this all the way to the Supreme Court. He's going to fight it all the way to SCOTUS if he has to. And I want to point out that these two guys are working together here. Like, I'm not saying they're on the phone with each other and they're planning out what they're going to do. I don't think they need to. I think they're on the same page. Because I think they've always been working together and their feud such that it is, is completely fake. It's kayfabe. And this is another example of it right here. Why if Mike Pence, if Mike Pence is this deep state swamp creature, backstabber, traitor, and all the other bad things he's been accused of being, why is he fighting this subpoena? Why is he not eager to sabotage his 2024 opponent? In front of a grand jury. If Pence is a snake, why isn't Pence rushing to go before a grand jury 
and damage his 2024 opponent. Wouldn't it be so easy? Wouldn't it be incredibly easy for him to go up there and to say a bunch of bad things about Trump? But yet here we are. And if you look back, you'll notice that at every opportunity that Pence has had to stab Trump in the back, he hasn't. Every time. And here we have them both willing to fight this. And what and this is very important. You can forget whether you buy into my kayfabe thing and whether you believe that Trump and Pence are actually, their feud is fake and all that stuff. You can forget all that. Set that aside. Regardless of whether or not that is true, whether or not I'm correct about that, this is important what they're doing. Because Pence is asserting that because of the Constitution speech and debate clause, he can't be forced to do this. He can't, he is protected. Because in the day that he was in, on January 6th, when he was in front of the joint session, he was acting as an officer of the Senate. He was president of the Senate that day. And the constitution speech or debate clause protects lawmakers from certain law enforcement actions and things like, okay. So he's, he's saying, look, I was serving as a role. I was, I was, what I did that day was part of my role as an officer in that joint session or an official. And so I'm protected by this. And this is going to, I think this may go to the Supreme court to decide. Um, I didn't, I don't think I have it saved, but I read an interesting, interesting thread from a lawyer um, that I found about this when Pence, it was a couple of weeks ago when Pence, the news broke that Pence was going to fight this. Um, and he was saying, look, nobody really knows whether or not the vice president is protected in this way. Um, it could be that he is, but it, it, we really need SCOTUS. SCOTUS has never had to decide such a thing. So it will set a precedent. And how that precedent comes down, how that, that, that is formed, what the, what the lines are that it draws is going to guide future investigations into public officials. You know, you know that the swamp creatures would love to hide behind the constitution speech or debate clause. They'll hide behind anything they can. So I'm really interested to see this go all the way to SCOTUS and for SCOTUS to take maybe trim that protection a bit. That's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. And I, and we've seen that we've seen that happen with Trump in these legal battles where he's, as I've said before, Trump is willing to take these attacks and to fight these legal battles and lose them on purpose 
so that these precedents are set, so that the protections that um, and these legal statutes and these other things that the swamp has hid behind and has used to cover up their crimes and prevent being investigated, he's willing to fight those things as far as he needs to in order to get them trimmed away or even struck down and to lose so that it sets the precedent and when the when next investigations come up against other people in government who people who have had high office they don't have those protections it's it's like he's cancel he's canceling out their protections by purposefully losing and one of the best examples of that are his taxes um which i brought up before the he, trump made them chase him to get his taxes and there's nothing he had no reason to hide them He had no reason to hide them. I mean, it's one of the best proofs that Trump is doing this is that he had no reason to hide those taxes. And we all agree that we want to see year, not just one or two years of taxes. We want to see years and years and years of taxes for our elected officials. We want to know exactly where they're making their money. And by Trump making them chase him, he set the precedent that even the president of the United States has to show 10 years or so of taxes, the financial dealings. So why not a representative in the House and why not a senator? Shouldn't they have to show 10 years? And so he takes the law, he takes the loss, the short-term loss, because it's going to be this long-term gain. See it over and over again. Good morning, Music and Fiction. Music and Fiction says Senator Liz Warren and then Rep. Deb Howland used the speech and debate clause to get themselves out of the Nicholas Sandman lawsuit. A trimming is needed to bring people to heal. I did not know that. And Thank you, because that makes me even more sure that that is what is going on. Yeah, that, thank you, because that makes me even more sure that that's exactly what these two men are doing. They're going to trim those protections down. Amy, Amy says, I'm still standing up for Barr and Pence. Haven't ever budged. Me too. Good on you. Good on you. And since you said that, I have something from Bill Barr. So you guys remember, I touched on, I think it was the last show. I think it was number 183. Was it? Maybe it was 182. Which one was it? Yeah, it was 183. I talked about Joint Task Force Vulcan and John Durham's son, one of his sons, John J. Durham being the director of it, and how they busted not three. That's the headline, three high ranking, but it's actually more than three. It's a four-count indictment charging 13 of the highest ranking MS-13 leaders in the world with racketeering and terrorism. And that came out on February 23rd. 
And then last week, uh, one of the things that people were yelling at each other about and trying to get people super upset about was Garland talking about MS-13 and just Garland in general. Anytime you bring up Garland's name, the fake news media is going to try and program you to believe that Garland is the worst person in the world. He's so terrible. But Garland got up and talked about MS-13 in front of the house. And guess what? Bill Barr wrote this Wall Street Journal op-ed about MS-13. And I just don't think these it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that John Durham's son and Task Force Vulcan handed down this massive indictment just before Garland goes before the House and talks about MS-13 and other things. And then Bill Barr comes up and talks about MS-13. I don't think... um. I don't I don't think that's a that's a that's just a coincidence. So Bill Barr, who started Task Force Vulcan and appointed John J. Durham to be the director of it, and who also appointed John Durham to be special counsel, um pinned this op-ed. And I'm not gonna read the whole thing. I'm just noting that this is He's talking, this whole thing is about Mexico's drug cartels are narco terrorists and um, they're more like ISIS and the American mafia and that there's a war going on. And he was charged by Trump to declare war on MS-13 and he did. And that war continues, even though Biden is president and Garland's at DOJ, but somehow the war on MS-13 continues. I don't know. How that happens unless there's some sort of there's something going on that the fake news doesn't want us to know about because it corrupts their business model. All right. Let me just go ahead and trigger more people. Peter Strzok. Peter Strzok posted this interesting article. And I'll get to his comments. Well, he says it's an astonishing article. In 20 years of working cases involving classified information, I never, not once, encountered prosecutors who wanted to get a search warrant and reluctant, even refusing agents. The other way around, sure. And then he wrote, having thought about this article for a few days, there are two, un- there are two related, and I'm going to read the article. There are two related things that have have me still thinking. One, this wasn't a conflict between DOJ and FBI. It was one between DOJ FBI headquarters and the FBI Washington field office. The timing of this article, why now eight months after the fact? It's odd. So I want to go to this article. Do I need to archive it first? No, I don't. Because this is one of the stories that broke, and I saw it floating around, but I haven't dived into it. But it has to do with uh, the Mar-a-Lago raid, which I believe was 100% um, Patriots in control, 100% planned. Trump wanted the raid to happen. Um, It's not at all what the fake news has portrayed it as on either side, the right or the left. Kelly and Oak ask, 
Kyle, who is it that is saying AOC is a white hat? Is it Patrick? Yes, and it is also me. It is also me. AOC is a Judas goat. I wouldn't call her a white hat. Um, I would say she's a Judas goat. One of a few, but she's the best. She's absolutely the best. Um, I think I have a clip somewhere on my clips channel of me talking about it and explaining it. Um, I think I do. I know I've talked about it on this show a number of times. Um, but just look, just look at what she does and, uh, and notice how she keeps on damaging her own party. Um, and she never does she does she never does anything that actually helps the democrats she's always hurting them um and she's always providing us with meme templates um yeah anyway that's a, that's another subject all right so this washington post article showdown before the raid fbi agents and prosecutors argued over trump an exclusive look at behind-the-scenes deliberations as both sides wrestle with national security case that has potentially far-reaching political consequences. This is most likely a case where the leaks are real and the news is fake, okay? It is WAPO, after all. And it took one, two, four people to write the article. So... I do want to say that this is there's going to be a lot of spin here, as you probably know. Put your filters on. We're going to parse through it, and we're going to try and find the valuable information that is in it um, and discern some things from it. Months of disputes between Justice Department prosecutors and FBI agents over how best to try to recover classified documents marked classified from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago club and residents led to a tense showdown near the end of July last year, according to four people familiar with the discussions. I want to ask a question right now. How did the FBI know that there were marked classified documents at Mar-a-Lago? How did they know that? I think it's because Trump told them. I think the informant at Mar-a-Lago who tipped them off, which led to the search warrant, which led to the raid, is Trump. (laughs) Prosecutors argued that new evidence suggested Trump was knowingly concealing secret documents at his Palm Beach, Florida home. Yeah, because he told them. But two senior FBI officials who would be in charge of leading the search resisted the plan as too combative and proposed instead to seek Trump's permission to search his property, according to the four people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe a sensitive investigation. Prosecutors ultimately prevailed in that dispute, one of several previously unreported clashes in a tense tug of war between two arms of the Justice Department over how aggressively to pursue a criminal investigation of a former president. The FBI conduct... Oh, man. See, okay. 
when I read that, I'm just thinking about templates. I'm just thinking that's right. This is the tug of war, a tense tug of war between two arms of the Justice Department on over how aggressively to pursue a criminal investigation of a former president. That's part of the purpose here. For the Justice Department to have to wrestle with how to hold people accountable in criminal matters, how to investigate people for criminal violations who have temp- have previously held high office. This right here, to me, there's the leak. There's one of the leaks that is real and that the fake news is molded around. But there's the leak that's real. The FBI conducted an unprecedented raid on August 8th. Yes, it was. I love that word, unprecedented. Recovering more than 100 marked classified items, among them a document describing a foreign government's military defenses, including its nuclear capabilities. Starting in May, FBI agents in the Washington field office had sought to slow the probe, urging caution given its extraordinary sensitivity, the people said. Some of those field agents wanted to shutter the criminal investigation altogether in early June after Trump's legal team asserted a diligent search had been conducted and all classified records had been turned over, according to some people familiar. The idea of closing the probe was not something that was discussed or considered by FBI leadership and would not have been approved, a senior law enforcement official said. This account reveals for the first time the degree of tension among law enforcement officials and behind-the-scenes deliberations as they wrestled with a national security case that has potentially far-reaching political consequences. Yes, 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 it does. The disagreement stemmed in large part from worries among officials that whatever steps they took in investigating a former president would face intense scrutiny and second-guessing by people inside and outside the government. However, the agents who typically perform the bulk of the investigative work in cases and the prosecutors who guide agents' work and decide on criminal charges ultimately focused on very different pitfalls, according to people familiar with their discussions. On one side, federal federal prosecutors in the department's National Security Division advocated aggressive ways to secure some of the country's most closely guarded secrets, which they feared Trump was intentionally hiding at Mar-a-Lago. On the other, FBI agents in the Washington field office urged more caution with such a high-profile matter, recommending that they take a cooperative rather than confrontational approach. Both sides were mindful of the intense scrutiny the case was drawing and felt they had to be above reproach while investigating a former president, um, then inspected to run for re-election, which he is, which resulted in the special counsel, which Trump also wanted, while trying to follow the Justice Department playbook for classified records probes, Investigators on both sides braced for Trump to follow his own playbook of publicly attacking the integrity of their investigation. That's right. Hey, Fabe. Hey, <laughs> Fabe. I mean, it's right there, guys. It's right there. They're trying. They're trying to make sure we got to do this investigation right. We got if we're going to get a search warrant, we got to make sure we do it right. We have to be above reproach. We have to make sure we do everything by the book, dot our I's and cross our T's. And we also know that as we do this, Trump is going to say we're bad. 
We got to prepare for the kayfabe. We got to prepare for the psyop that is going to run over the psy act. And yeah. The FBI agent's caution was also rooted in the fact that mistakes in prior probes of Hillary Clinton and Trump had proved damaging to the FBI and the cases subjected the Bureau to sustained public attacks from partisans. It's true. It's true. Prosecutors countered that the FBI failing to treat Trump as it had other government employees who were not truthful about classified records could threaten the nation's security as evidence surfaced suggesting that Trump or his team was holding back sensitive records, the prosecutors pushed for quick action to recover them. While the people who described these sensitive discussions disagreed on some particulars, they agreed on many aspects of the dispute. Spokespeople for the Justice Department and the FBI declined to comment on this story. Attorney General Merrick Garland asked about this report at the Senate hearing Wednesday, said he could not describe the investigation, but added that in his experience as a prosecutor, there is often a robust discussion and it's encouraged among investigators and prosecutors. Mermaid Miss Kay, good morning. Nice to see you. I hope you're doing well. I haven't seen you very much at all lately. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, trigger nine-tenths of my audience right now and tell you that you should follow Peter Strzok on Twitter, and you should do it and watch what he shares and read what he says with a mind to understand rather than react to it. Because I think it is notable that he is pointing out this article. And I think his observations are good ones. He's saying, look, this was a conflict between DOJ FBI headquarters and the FBI Washington field office. And the timing of this article is odd. And I think he's right. This is very interesting that this article, which seems much more, this article, there's nothing in this article that this article could have come out, you know, the week after the raid on Mar-a-Lago, which wasn't a raid. It was just a search warrant. This article could have come out then and it, you know, it would have hit the same. So why, why is this leak now? Why, why is this leak being put out now to describe this battle that ha- that occurred? Um, I'm tempted to read I'm tempted to read uh Peter Strzok's Substack here.
Let's do it. So Peter, Peter Strzok has a substack called the unsub files. I think it's important. I honestly, guys, I think it's important to develop the ability to engage with some of these people, regardless of what you think of what you actually think about them and to, um, just try and just try and understand because what Peter Strzok is picking up on here, he's right. He's, he's, this is a great observation by him. You need to, he's asking the right questions. So two days after a detailed laden Washington post article describing the discussion and dissent within the DOJ and FBI about the investigative path, looking into classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, the prevailing summary appears to have boiled down to this over a period of months. DOJ found themselves battling an FBI reluctant to aggressively pursue logical investigation, culminating after several months last summer in in using the later words of one of the article's authors, a, quote, knockdown drag out fight about whether to seek a search warrant for former president, the former president's residence at Mar-a-Lago. I need to close this. But a careful reading of the post reporting insofar as the reporting is complete pretty short article reveals this was not so much a conflict between DOJ and FBI as much as a conflict between DOJ and FBI HQ on one hand and the management of the FBI's Washington field office on the other full disclosure. I worked with several of the prosecutors and agents described in the article. This post is going to do such a close reading. So get ready for, or prepare to skip the bulk of this post about some of the forensically forensic disassembly of the post article. First, it's important to frame the issue of why the debate in the article is notable. Before we do that, there is one very significant caveat to carry throughout this post. Whether you're a journalist or an investigator, sources' memories can be faulty, and even journalists can be imprecise and inaccurate. The post article isn't, for example, the type of comprehensive accounting you get in a report produced by an inspector general who can compile the statements of everyone involved and review and compare those statements to the written record in all its various forms. And it's also, and it's almost certain that every participant in the described events did not provide their version of what happened to the post. (laughs) Why are mom and dad always fighting? Turning to the conflict between the conflict described in the article, day to day disagreement between prosecutors and special agents is not unusual. Far from it. It's a characteristic of a healthy investigative relationship. I routinely had robust disagreement and debate with prosecutors about the investigative path of cases, including with two of the DOJ personnel named in the Post article. On occasion in those meetings, in what happened in an August 2022 meeting described in the article, quote, tempers ran high. Although a bit of stereotype, agents tend to be aggressive and impatient wanting to get as much information as quickly as possible to move the case forward. Prosecutors want the same, but focus on different and complementary set of considerations. The how of obtaining legal process, e.g. are there sufficient facts to demonstrate probable cause to, to a judge to obtain a search warrant, issues of privilege, are there attorneys, members of the media, or other entities which bring additional regulations into play, the balance between seeking Consent rather than executing a search warrant might consent allow a broader scope of access than that which would be obtained via a search warrant and much more. What is unusual about the episode described in the post is the roles were flipped. 
DOJ pulled reluctant investigators along, <clears throat> potentially delaying the recovery of highly classified materials by months. They weren't high classified. And by unusual, I mean close to unprecedented. As I tweeted, in 20 years of working cases involving classified information, I never, not once, encountered prosecutors who wanted to get a search warrant and reluctant, even refusing agents. One of the things that bothers me the most is an apparent lack of investigative skepticism and curiosity. There is a very reasonable point that any investigation involving a high-level official has unique considerations. Investigating without fear or favor doesn't mean the context is the same. In this case, given an investigation of events involving a former president, it's prudent, it's prudent to give additional, inf- additional consideration to the investigative plan. But additional consideration doesn't mean ending an investigation based on a caveat-laden attestation that no classified material remained, written and signed by attorneys of a man who had spent more than a year delaying and avoiding returning classified material to the government. It doesn't mean avoiding taking investigative steps, such as obtaining and reviewing CCTV coverage of Mar-a-Lago, especially when the CCTV footage ultimately revealed behavior at odds with the attestation and apparently... (coughs) Pardon me. Provided significant facts to support probable cause to obtain a search warrant. If you don't recall, um, the FBI asked for and received from Mar-a-Lago um, surveillance footage of the areas that in June of the areas that would then be searched in August. Consider the FBI's investigation, one that I was involved with, involving another high-level individual, not a president, but close. Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee for president in 2016. Throughout the investigation, Clinton's camp was cooperative, voluntarily turning over and consenting to searches of emails and other records in various forms. In that investigation, the pattern of aggressive agents working with measured prosecutors held true. A DOJ IG report about the case noted the process of obtaining evidence was sometimes slow, leading to occasional healthy conflict between agents and prosecutors, where prosecutors argued to continue negotiating for consent while agents pressed to stop the talks and seek a search warrant instead. Further, the Clinton camp, the Clinton camp's assertion that everything had been turned over wasn't enough to satisfy investigators. Despite the marked difference between the rapidity and completeness of Clinton's cooperation, a few months to voluntarily turn over material in her possession compared to more than a year a foot-dragging non-compliance on Trump's part, that cooperation alone wasn't enough to satisfy investigators. Investigators didn't take Clinton's word that she had turned over everything and shut down the case in fall of 2015. The FBI continued to search for email servers, for backups of those servers at server farms and other remote locations for laptops used to sort her email and went across the wide span of the government to other agencies to recover every email we could from other parties. That any investigator would want to continue playing cooperatively with a demonstrably recalcitrant and allegedly criminally obstructed party doesn't make sense. Although that statement isn't true, it does make sense to me. The explanation comes from what I find to be the most remarkable, unsurprising, and disappointing detail in the entire article. Quote, 
But the prosecutors learned FBI agents were still loath to conduct a surprise search. They also heard from top FBI officials that some agents were simply afraid. They worried taking aggressive steps to investigate steps investigating Trump could blemish or even end their careers, according to some people with knowledge of the discussions. One official dubbed it the hangover of crossfire hurricane, a reference to the FBI's investigation of Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and possible connection to Trump campaign. The people said as president Trump repeatedly targeted some FBI officials involved in the Russia case. That's right. This was the goal of Trump Barr, Durham and others target anything the FBI did to investigate anything related to Trump create sufficient personal and institutional fear to cause inaction. And it succeeded. Interesting. Beyond the facts, beyond the unusual facts in the article, there is the equally unusual fact of the article. As pointed out by former national security prosecutor, Brennan Van Grack, it's highly unusual for details of this debate to leak out while the case is still pending. While I disagree with Van Grack that this is the most troubling aspect of the story, to me the just-described point that agents were simply afraid to investigate Trump carries that, that honor, it is unusual. Much like the unique nature of the roles being flipped, I cannot remember a similar leak mid-investigation of such inside baseball information. And it raises a critical question. Why this leak now? Who is harmed and who benefits or avoids harm? Guys, whatever you think about Peter Strzok, those are the right questions. Those are the right questions to ask. Why is this leaking now? Why is this article being published now? Who is harmed by this article? Who benefits? Who avoids harm? Those those are the right questions to ask. And that's why I said to you, I recommend following Peter, Peter Strzok and considering with what he has to say and what his observations are, not reacting, but instead seeking to understand. And what I think about this this article here, which I didn't read the whole thing. I read I read down to this part right there. There's more. There's more in this article, but I it's already after eleven o'clock. So I know what I know I need to move on to something. But what I what I, what I think this might be about I'm really thinking now. All right, this is my first thought. My first thought about why now.
is they're prepare they're preparing for Trump to not be charged. They're prepare they're preparing to not for Trump to not be tra- not be charged. And so they're starting out with from the very beginning the investigation, there was conflict within the investigation between DOJ and FBI agents who were doing the investigation. Whether or not to do the search warrant, whether or not to do this or that, slowing things down. I think they're, I think they're trying to prepare the ground for Trump to not be charged. Which I never believe he would be because I don't think he actually is the target of it anyway. But um, WAPO and everybody else has convinced on both sides of the media have convinced uh, their readership that Trump is the target and DOJ is after Trump. And uh, so that's one explanation about why now that's one answer to these excellent questions is that they are doing this now to try and try and prepare things for when that eventually is the case that Trump is not charged with anything. All right. I want to check. I want to check out the rest of what, what struck has to say here to address that question. We need to dive into the article a little bit, which turns out to be a bit of an art form. If you'd rather not do that and want to skip ahead to the who benefits section, that makes complete sense. I'm going to stick with this in a course. I teach at Georgetown university. We spend one class looking at the intersection of media and national security how the media covers national security investigations, how the government handles those people who inevitably leak information to the media in some of their coverage, and how both entities view their obligations to the public and the national security of the U.S. There's a not-so-apparent method and code to how national media coverage of national security investigations work, and it just so happens Benjamin Witt wrote an invaluable introduction to the process. It's a signed reading in my class. And I encourage you to take a look before continuing. We're going to skip it. When Ben's guidance, with Ben's guidance in mind, let's take a closer look at the post piece. The first point is the byline is fairly large. Carol Linnig, a veteran investigative reporter covering the White House and government accountability. Devlin Barrett, a reporter focusing on national security and law enforcement, including the FBI for many years. Perry Stein, a reporter covering the Justice Department, and Aaron Davis, an investigative reporter. Spencer Hu, or Sue, another investigative reporter, while not on the byline, appears at the end of the article as contributing to the article. So that's five people in this article. Looking at the past articles of each reporter can give you a sense of the nuance of the perspective their sources tend to advance with their respective agencies. Do their sources tend to be high-ranking or low-ranking? The headquarters or in the field, conservative or liberal. As a side note, if you'd particularly interested in a report, monitor the version changes. In the cases of this article, the original was posted on March 1st at 6 a.m. It was revised at least once at 2.46 p.m. Updates typically contain things like comments from the parties identified within the article, but updates which change things like the characterization of or information from sources can be especially interesting. Some of the most compelling passages are the actual words of the parties involved in the description of the debate between the FBI and DOJ in a meeting at the the FBI. Quote, 
about a week before the Mar-a-Lago search on August 8th, 2022. The article identifies by name several DOJ and FBI officials attending the meeting. From DOJ Assistant Attorney General Matt Olson and DOJ National Security Division Attorneys George Toscas and Jay Bratt. From the FBI, Steve Dantono, or Dantuano, and then the head of the FBI's Washington field office, Alan Kohler, head of FBI's counterintelligence division, Jason Jones, the FBI's general counsel. One more official, not at the meeting, is named Paul Abbott, or Paul Abate, or Paul Abate, I don't know, the FBI's deputy director. The article identifies several statements made by the participants, including three direct quotes italicized below, all of which were made by or to Dantuano. Note how the various source information in the article frames each individual. Dantuano was, quote, adamant the FBI not do a surprise search, including a source-disputed assertion that, quote, he would agree to lead such a raid only if he were ordered to. He repeatedly urged the FBI to seek to persuade Trump attorney Evan Corcoran to agree to a consensual search of the property. Some, but not all of the post sources noted he, quote, complained how bad it would look for agents with FBI emblazoned on their jackets to invade a former president's home. Dantuano allegedly questioned why the scope of the search would include presidential records in addition to classified material with a direct quote attributed to him that, quote, we are not the presidential records police. After Toskis allegedly told him that despite his own initial reservations, he too was swayed by the evidence, Dantuano allegedly stated, George, that's great, but you haven't swayed me. Finally, the article notes in response to Jones' indication that he planned to recommend to Abate I want to call him Avante. The FBI seek a search warrant. Dantuano stated that he would he would recommend that they not. Bratt, quote, raised his voice at times and stressed to the FBI agents that the time for trusting Trump and his lawyers was over, according to some, but not all of the sources. When Dantuano asked whether Trump was officially the subject of a criminal investigation, Bratt reportedly stated, quote, what does it matter? Expanding that the most important fact was that highly sensitive government records probably remained at Mar-a-Lago and could be destroyed or spirited away if the FBI did not recover them soon. Toskis was viewed by some attorneys as a DOJ veteran who had worked with the FBI through Crossfire Hurricane and Clinton email investigations as a prosecutor whose words would carry special weight with FBI agents, though he was not able to change Dan Tuano's mind. Jones, quote, considered a confidant of FBI Director Chris Wray, agreed the team had sufficient probable cause to justify a search warrant, and that he planned to recommend to F- Deputy FBI Director Paul Abate that the FBI seek a warrant for the search. Kohler pushed back on Dan Tuano's concerns, about the appearance of a search, asking, quote, the senior agents, plural, and an odd formulation given Kohler himself is a senior agent, the senior agents to consider how bad it would look if the FBI chose not to act and government secrets were hidden at Mar-a-Lago. No statements or opinions are attributed to Olson, 
Although the article notes at some point after the meeting, he appealed to senior officials at FBI headquarters to push their agents to conduct the raid. And that a day later, Abate directed Washington field office to conduct the search. While there is temporarily indistinct mention or temporarily indistinct mention in the middle of the discussion of the meeting that quote FBI agents on the case worried the prosecutors were being overly aggressive. It is not clear who else, if anyone was present at the meeting, including case agents from F from Washington field office or lower ranking program managers at FBI headquarters. Let's turn to the sources in the article. Right off the bat in the first paragraph, the article tells us there are, quote, four people familiar with the discussions. So that's the stated universe, four sources. In my experience, as far as internal FBI and DOJ discussions go, that's a lot. I remember being irritated when one or two sources might leak. But four? A notably high and unusual number. It suggests to me that for whatever reason, one, People felt it exceptionally important to get this narrative out to the public. And two, they had the blessing of their superiors to do so. It's very important to note that the senior most leaders of both DOJ and the FBI have the authority to allow people to discuss various organizational matters with the media. And if any of these sources were speaking with the Post under such authority, as I believe at least the, quote, senior law enforcement official described below was, then those were authorized disclosures, not leaks. People familiar with does not mean people engaged in, although it might. People familiar with doesn't even mean people in the government, although it might. At this point, as far as internal DOJ FBI discussions go, by this I mean discussions not including people like defense counsel or things memorialized and material briefed to outside entities like Congress or turned over in discovery. It could mean anything from one, a government employee engaged in the events described in the article, two, a government employee informed about the work, someone like an employee of an office of public affairs described in the article, three, an attorney for a government employee engaged in the events described in the article, or a friend or surrogate of the government employee described in the article, or five, a third party who overheard or was told information by anyone in one through four. From the article, we know some more about the four sources. At least one of them is, quote, a senior law enforcement official, someone who defended FBI leadership, saying words to the effect of, the, quote, idea of closing the probe was not something that was discussed or considered by FBI leadership and would not have been approved. A law enforcement official could be either from FBI or DOJ. However, given they're defending the FBI, particularly FBI headquarters, it's a reasonable guess they're FBI. We know a bit more about probably the same source. In a discussion on MSNBC's deadline White House later on March 1st, Leonig, one of the authors, noted, quote, I think it's safest for me to say that the effort to, or rather the discussion and proposal, informal proposal, to close down the case in June was at the Washington field office among line agents, people who are responsible for this work. 
and the FBI headquarters, as alleged by a senior official who we interviewed about this, said FBI headquarters did not know that this discussion was going on, and they insist that they would not have approved it. We've had many people say, you know, this would not have been approved by senior leadership of the FBI. My guess is the senior law enforcement official described in the article is the same senior law senior official she describes here. <coughs> Pardon me. And it appears to have been in the context of a formal sanctioned interview, not a casual conversation with a source who wasn't supposed to have been talking about it. Leonig also notes at the end that they quote, had many people say it would not have been approved. That's harder to pin down. FBI officials might have said that. DOJ officials might have said it. Former FBI officials might have said that. But for this particular point, it's a consistent message and one very much intended to defend FBI headquarters decision-making. Leonig says, or rather, doesn't say, one little bit more about their sources. When Deadline host Nicole Wallace asked Leonig if she knew whether the Washington field office agents uh, who wanted to close the investigation were still on the case, Leonig responded, quote, I can't answer that at this moment. I'm sorry. She didn't respond that she didn't know, and she didn't respond with the public information that Dan Tuano retired from the FBI in early December 2022. One interpretation of Leonig's non-response is that the Post has some visibility into Washington field office personnel below Dan Tuano working on the case. But even if they do, it doesn't necessarily imply they are sources. We also know the four sources disagreed at times. Quote, while the people who described these sensitive discussions disagreed on particulars, some particulars, they agreed on many aspects of the dispute. Bullet point. Whether the investigation was delayed as a result of the disagreement, some inside the probe argued the infighting delayed the search by months, ultimately reducing the time prosecutors had to reach a decision on possible charges. Others contend the discussions were necessary to ensure the investigation proceeded on the surest footing, enabling officials to gather more evidence before they executed the search. Whether or not Dan Tuano, the head of the FBI's Washington field office, refused to conduct the search, he had said that he would agree to lead such a raid only if he were ordered to, according to two of the people. The other other people said Dan Tuano did not refuse to do the search, but argued that it should be a consensual search agreed to by Trump's legal team. While not a disagreement, three of the four sources were in a position to confirm prosecutors were hearing about discontent from the Washington field office after the decision was made to conduct the search. Prosecutors remained somewhat on guard until the day of the raid as they continued to hear rumblings of dissent from the Washington field office. According to three people familiar. All right, now who benefits? I have a hard time figuring out why this piece came out now. And speculation about the motivations of those behind leaking it is just that, speculation. It certainly presents DOJ and some senior leaders at FBI headquarters in a generally favorable light. I don't see the, oppos the opposing folks, those who preached caution and cooperation with Trump and argued against getting a warrant, leaking facts which undermine their position, unless they continue to think obtaining a search warrant was the wrong decision. And if they think that, given the alleged obstruction, all the classified information that was found during the search and then found again and then found yet again I have real questions about their judgment. Similarly, 
I don't see those who are vindicated in seeking a warrant gaining anything by leaking the details of that debate. The record is already on their side. People in special counsel Jack Smith's office don't appear to have motivation to do so. It simply adds an avenue of attack for any potential defense attorney. If an IG report or some other congressional oversight disclosure was imminent, I could see various parties trying to shape the narrative to get ahead of that. But this is a pending criminal case where any such administrative reviews and disclosures will be deferred until criminal proceedings are complete. Josh Hawley certainly made use of the article in a hearing with A.G. Garland the same day the article was published. Mischaracterizing the content of the article as part of his general harassment of Garland. According to Hawley, field agents wanted to close the case, but they were overruled by Maine DOJ. Whereas the article clearly notes that the decision was made by the FBI's deputy director, not DOJ. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Um, I wonder why there's an error on this. Sometimes, um, I don't want to learn more. <coughs> kind of, how much time do I have? Oh yeah. I don't really don't have that much time. All right. I'll skip that. Y'all saw it anyway. Um, I'll let y'all make up your own mind about the inner, the exchange between Josh Hawley and AG Garland, but I just want you to look up the definite. Well, I won't, I won't say that. I'll let you make up your own minds about that incident. So I don't see a very clear motive here. If I had to guess, and speculation is generally a poor idea, but you've made it this far through a very long post, someone in the FBI who disagreed with the investigative decisions in the Mar-a-Lago investigation was grumbling about it enough that one of the post reporters, particularly one of those who might have picked up pro-Trump FBI grumbling in the past, heard about it. Then, as the Post pursued the story and asked press offices for comment, big organizational-level FBI and DOJ said, wait a minute, that's not accurate. We need to defend our senior leaders in the organization. And this is important enough that we're going to go so far as to give you someone to interview to set the story straight before you publish. The Post picks up another couple of corroborating witnesses along the way, and we end up with a mid-investigation article about internal deliberations better left to a complete after-the-fact IG review. Wouldn't be the first time this sort of fact pattern occurred, nor would it be the first time for some of these particular reporters. To the extent the article represents a reality of agents afraid to investigate Trump, that's pretty abysmal commentary about the leadership failure to provide a political cover for agents to do their jobs when it comes to politically charged matters in general, and Trump in particular. But if the article brings attention to fixing that issue, perhaps there can be a silver line, silver line to all of this. And then he posts some pictures of his dog and cat. Look, whatever you think of Trump, that's a good article. That's, that's a good article. And that's insight that you're only going to get from somebody who was high up in the FBI and left and has experience in these matters. So there's a lot of, I, to me, there's a lot of value you can get out of that. He asked the right questions and he, and he breaks it down like a good investigator would. Um, I need to sign in and like this article. I'm already subscribed to his unsub files. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's struck Substack. It's peterstruck.substack.com. Um, 
pretty interesting, man. <clears throat> pretty interesting what he what he was able to pull out of that Washington Post article. Um, I'm trying to decide what I think about it. Um, there's something to this. There's there's something to this article, and you know another reason to follow Peter Strzok is because he's going to pick up on things like this. And whether you agree with his take or not, um, it's still going to be interesting. Um, now I do want to say, I'll just go ahead and end on a super controversial note. Um, I am going to tell you that I think that if you don't like Peter Strzok, if you hate him, if you think he's the spawn of Satan, um, that he programmed you to think that about him. That's my opinion is that Peter Strzok wanted you to think that. And he did his absolute damnedest, especially in that hearing to make sure you hated him. And there's a reason for that. And I'll leave you to think on what that reason might be. Okay. So that is my show for today. And <laughs> um, guys, if you enjoyed it, hit the thumbs up. If you hit, if you, if you enjoyed it, please hit the, uh, the thumbs up. And uh, share the show. I'll make some clips out of this. Uh, Buster Lou, I see you're saying that you want me to. Um... Yeah, okay. Um, I'll clip out some segments from today's show later this afternoon. Um, and then what I want to do is I want to come back. I want to do another show tonight. And I want to just cover Flynn's lawsuit. Um, so... I think um I think I can do it at 9:30 tonight. I promised my son I would wa I would watch some shows with him this evening after dinner, so I'm going to do that, but kids go to bed at 9 9:30. So, I will be back uh later tonight and we will just focus on Flynn's lawsuit and uh go through that. It'll be it'll be live yeah, it'll be live. And, um, yeah. So look for that. I'll make a post to confirm it. Um, and yeah, I'll see y'all tonight at nine thirty PM. So God bless y'all. I hope you have a great day. Thank you very much for the, uh, rumble rants and for the coffees and for the gold pills over on Foxhole. Thank you guys for uh, for being over there and watching. I appreciate it. I'm streaming now. I'm now streaming to uh, DLive, Rumble, Telegram, Twitter, Foxhole, all of these places. Um, and uh, I pre wherever y'all like to watch it, I appreciate it. Um, so remember, guys, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. So. And like any show that I do that is really super professional, I did not have my outro ready um, until just now where I'm going to need it. So um, as you can tell, even though I took a week off, I am still super pro.
Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let me make sure I got the audio enabled. Yeah, I think I know what I'm doing. All right, guys. Have a good one. I'll see y'all later tonight.